ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It is the scariest email to get. Please check your MyGov account. But this week on Download This Show, you really should check on your MyGov account because thousands of MyGov accounts are apparently being suspended out of concern that they're being used in scams. Also on the show, why YouTube's ad blocker detection could break the law somewhere in the world. And are we running out of data for AI? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guests this week are the most fabulous reporter with IT News. She, she insisted on being called us, and so it is. Kate Weber, welcome. Thank you. I only deal with facts, so yes, I am the most fabulous reporter at <laughs> IT News. That is correct. <laughs> Wonderful. And joining us uh, on the internets, uh, future economies reporter at the AAP, Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson. Welcome back. So good to be here with fabulous people. Oh, well, no, no, actually, only Kate's on the only fabulous one. I'm just oh. like... Slub. You guys are okay. <laughs> oh, thank you. All right, first up, thousands of MyGov accounts have been suspended. Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, but why? It wasn't my fault. Um, what so, did you do? <laughs> it's, a, it's a really interesting one. So I did nothing. However, so people are out there selling these scam-in-a-box kits with the idea that um, essentially they're, they're stealing the credentials of people's Medicare details. And... I mean, on the on the surface of it, it sounds like it might be good. Like maybe somebody else could deal with your MyGov messages when they <laughs> pop into your inbox. Could they deal with the, the ang- Could they deal with the anxiety that comes every time I see one? Like, what did I not it, pay? It honestly haunts me when yeah, I, I did see I did see somebody dress as one of those for Halloween one year, and I was like, yes, exactly <laughs> that. There essentially there's there's been a lot of cases. Apparently, forty five hundred um, confirmed MyGov scam victims um, have been identified and confirmed by the government. And it's because of these scam-in-a-box kits that are being sold on the dark web and and essentially made used to create websites that look like Centrelink or the Australian Tax Office or Medicare, get people to sign in, put all of their details in, including passwords that they've probably reused elsewhere, and steal their identity so they can use these details to to set up accounts and and basically create chaos for them, more so than their original MyGov account. So when you say scam in a box, Jen, there's a there's an image in my mind and it does involve a literal box. Kate, I'm sure that's not how it works. When you get a scam in a box, like what's the like what's the process? Like kind of walk me through the basics of it. I guess from what I understand, the scam in a box, they're they're quite popular with criminals because they are you know, a bit low effort, high reward, because as Jen was saying, a lot of people do use the same passwords and I'm guilty of it. Maybe just slightly vary it up a little bit. Um, so basically the scam in a box, the criminals are basically given even like the how-to on how to create these security controls and really just set up these fake websites. So that's pretty much my understanding of how it all works. It kind of sounds like a pretty good deal. You know, you send that out in mass numbers, I'm sure the results will, as we've seen, yield quite well for them all. <laughs> so how are the MyGov accounts useful in that context, Jen? Like how, how does it, how do you use a MyGov account to get money? Well, so I mean, um, I don't unless, want to give people a how to. Unless you're the ATO. <laughs> um, 
So there's there's a lot of information that contained within these accounts, a lot of identifying information. So potentially, you know, um, when you're you're used to you know set up a bank account, for example, often you can be asked to provide your your Medicare number. And so this is this is part of like a, a larger scam to sort of get at that. You'll also potentially have um, your ATO um, details linked so that they can get access to your uh, your tax file number. They can use this to to get at you in that way and, and end up setting accounts for you essentially. And, and these these sort of do it yourself kits they're they're basically for script kitties. So they're spreading the scam. They're making it easier for people to set up these things in the first place. So. It kind of it, it tickles me in a, in a really weird kind of dark way. There are people out there who've set up these boxes for other people to do the scam because they're too old for that. Like they've retired. They just want to go legit and sell scam boxes rather than having to do it themselves. But it, it does really spread the scam. And apparently, like according to the ACCC, Australians have lost $44 million just so far this year. And I don't think that included October's figures just in attempts to gain personal information. So this is not great business for everybody else who's not buying a scam in a box kit. So the government suspending these accounts, will it make much difference? Um, I mean, we hope so. But the thing about these scams is that they can close very, very quickly, leading to very, very hard to kind of catch these criminals. So yeah, the accounts have been suspended, but I, I guess, you know, the very easy scam in a box kind of conjures up the image of Jack in the Box. Who knows, I'll probably pop up <laughs> again, <laughs> uh, you know, should these accounts um, you know, ever you know, go live again. So we'll, we'll see. I guess it's a bit, bit very, very tricky. I know scams and fraud is on the top of a lot of people's minds, banks included, so it's um, incredibly hard to combat. It comes at a time as the government is looking at overhauling ID verification, including a like a, a MyGov ID. Walk me through what the, at least what we understand of what the plan is at the moment, Kate. Yeah, so the digital ID, it'll basically help verify that you are you when you try and, well, when you do log in to access government verifications, uh, government services, sorry. Um, so I think that's the main plan at the moment. Um, shows Seems to be showing a lot of promise. Um, I know yesterday as well, uh, the government also introduced a few more security measures uh, for MyGov. I think next year they're going to roll out um, some pass, passwordless approaches uh, like pass keys and facial rec- recognition. So a lot more biometrics um, rather than just your standard keyboard password that we're so used to. Uh, so that might help hamper the scammers. How do you feel about the the changes in government ID, Jen? Incredibly awkward and nervous, um, which is, I think, I mean, maybe that's my just default setting. I was going to say. <laughs> but in, in terms of the government and technology, they don't have the best track record. Even when it comes to things like, like Centrelink, red flags, and and this idea of like a, a central ID, I mean, it has been raised ever since like Bob Hawke started talking about the Australia card, as, as I recall, even though I was a wee kiddo at that point. It is problematic. I think it does need to include really strict security measures. And we're talking two-factor ID by default, biometric settings, because once you set up one of these systems, it's a beacon for scammers. It's not just, you know, scam in a box kids. It's people who who genuinely do this for a living, if they can see money in it, they will absolutely target it. So it makes me very nervous and I hope they get it right and I want them to get it right. We've seen um, the Queensland government just last week bring out a digital driver's license. This sort of stuff, there's an appetite for it. 
but it really needs to be locked down. Kate, do you think those concerns are warranted? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think um, scammers, they always just seem to get a little more sophisticated. It's always, yeah, they always seem to be one step ahead a little bit. And, it, it, you know, Jen was right. If there's a digital ID and, you know, it's got all that information on one centralised spot, <laughs> that can be quite nerve wracking. Might even make the scammer's job a little more easy. But we'll see. I guess trying to find a positive, at least the government's really very aware of the problem and looking to do something. We just got to hope that it works. <laughs> Cross I, your fingers. That's the, that's, that's the thing is anything truly unable to be hacked into? Mm. I, I don't know. <laughs> Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guest this week, Kate Weber from IT News and Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, Future Economies reporter with the AAP. Mark Fennell is my name. Do you use an ad blocker when you browse on the internet. Well, YouTube, uh, the video streaming website, have uh, ad blocker detection. But is it illegal in Europe, Jen? Uh, hard to say just now. Because this, is, this is one for the Now court. could you do it with a French accent, please? <laughs> <laughs> no, Mark. That's cultural appropriation and also I'm not very good at it. Okay. German? Um, <laughs> Never mind. Carry on. <laughs> no, no. Um, absolutely not. So this is this is another really interesting case of the Europeans kind of making big tech answer big questions. And so back in the day, take you back to 2018, Europe brought out this world-leading internet privacy rules called the GDPR, um, which sounds fun. It stands for General Data Privacy Regulation. And they did this way before everybody else, and it's the reason that we can't have threads in Europe, for example, because um, it's just they, they take too much stuff and they know that they'll get pinged, matter this is. So... And one of the, the people who's kind of involved in some of this privacy legislation has noticed that Google is targeting ad blockers and has said essentially, you can't be doing that. According to our privacy rules, you cannot be scanning through our computers looking for what software that we're using. I'm going to take you to court on this. And Google says that absolutely they can do this because it's against their terms of service to use an ad blocker. Ads are kind of their whole thing, essentially. You might think that you're just there for cute cat videos. It's it's not true. Apparently, you're just there for ads. And so then we have this, this big debate. And in the meantime, a lot of people who do use ad blockers, uh, they're having their accounts flagged, essentially, and they're being told, you need to stop doing this. How do you think this is going to play out, Kate? I have no idea. The dystopian person in me believes that people will just comply. They'll kick up the storm. They'll say, no, I'm not going to pay for premium premium YouTube subscriptions just to avoid ad. I agree that it's illegal um, for YouTube to do this, but I just think YouTube will just slowly just beat everyone down because... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, those ads, man. <laughs> Some of them go for far too long and you think they're over and then they pop up another one and you're like, oh my God. So long term, I feel like YouTube, if, if you know, if European Union says that it's fine for them to do this, I feel like YouTube might win this battle, unfortunately. But if we as a collective just drop our subscription accounts because of all of this, maybe, maybe they'll listen. But It's interesting. Um, I... I pay for YouTube um, because I found the ads so annoying <laughs> and I feel like it did make me think I'm across the board more comfortable with any of these technology services if I'm paying for them because I at least understand the dynamic between me and them. But as true as that is, 
they're still collecting all the same data they collected mm. before. Like they still know everything. I just, in my mind, I feel like it's a fairer trade for some reason. I don't know. Well, see, you've given them your data and now your money. <laughs> I have, haven't I? But I don't have to sit through their ads. So that feels like a trade. No. <laughs> for those of you that aren't in the room with Kate, she rolled her eyes so hard she may have sprained something. Is <laughs> is there a is there a healthier dynamic between user and privacy and tech company, Jen, that, that I'm somehow missing? I think it's always going to be somewhat uncomfortable. You either pay with your money or you pay with your privacy. Neither of these outcomes are terribly good. However, you do remain entertained by staying on the internet. Um, there's not necessarily a comfortable a comfortable medium between these two things. I think that it's kind of a convenience tax at this point because I don't think we're going to get to the point where people say, okay, well, I'm not going to watch YouTube anymore. I don't know that we can we can get there in, in the current day. I think that people are way too attached to it now. And when I say people, I'm probably specifically referring to the people in my family who use it like it's a, it's a second free-to-air service. And so I think that maybe they will get a few more subscribers out of this if they do keep targeting people. And, and yes, maybe it's because of the, the convenience of not having these pop-ups and rather than just having your, your computer scanned and, and, and checked for ad blockers. It's an interesting one, though. And, like, in general, people should, you know, pay for some of the stuff that they see on the internet and pay for some of the stuff that, you know, the, the news sites, for example, I'm a big supporter of that. But at the same time, how much of the $17 is going towards those people? I'm not sure. Do you think there's a better relationship that can exist between user, massive tech company and privacy, Kate? I don't know. I think it's a really big question. I think as Jen said, you know, you kind of pay with money or you pay with your privacy. I think we're almost used to that. I think, what's the saying? Um, if the product is free, the product is you. Hmm. I think we've kind of seen that a lot, say, way back when Facebook first introduced and we all kind of thought it was just this one way, to, fun way to communicate with friends and family. Uh, but we soon realised that what we were doing, mm. uh, no matter how innocent it seemed, was kind of being mined for data. And that just feels very spiky. But maybe maybe there are more people like you who are like, understand that, okay, if you are going to mine my data, at least give me no ads and in exchange, I'll even give you a bit of money. It sounds a bit I don't know, unfair to hand them both your data and your money. Just Kate, so. Kate, Kate doesn't want to call me a mug to my face. <laughs> no, no, no. But she's definitely thinking it. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's a very, very tricky um, one to balance. But I just think, like, how many subscriptions are we going to end up paying? Like, when I think about, you know, between... Million. Yeah, like, everyone's like, oh, it's just a little bit of money. But it's like, man, between my Spotify and my Netflix and whatever else. And it's always being raised and it's always, you know, they claim for my own benefit, but I don't know. I have a terrible story to share in this case too. I actually, I found an app where I could track all of my subscriptions and I started putting them all in and then I got to a certain point and they said, yes, you'll need to pay a subscription to keep using this service. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's no way out. Okay, so here's a controversial question. Across the board, should ad blockers be allowed. If, I think if, so. Okay, so hear me out here. So if if there is a significant chunk of the internet that at present can only be supported by advertising, are ad blockers inherently unethical? I mean, I don't think so. I, I, again, maybe if it's like um, YouTube is airing, say, real news, for example, ABC, maybe in that case... I can understand 
ad blockers, I don't know, maybe not being the best, but overall I just feel like we're constantly bombarded with ads in general. Mm. Can we not have some, you know, just some stop just for once uh, a little bit? Um, and if they aren't going to show me ads, it'd be great if they could be good ones. I think, the, I think the, we can all classic, agree on that. Just the classic funny ones that had those funny jingles and the really great catchphrases that we probably still remember now, you know, from, from our childhood when we watched free-to-air television and ads were obviously inescapable. So and ubiquitous. And the same ad over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think ad blockers are inherently bad. The great ethical question, Jen, are ad blockers inherently unethical? Uh, as, a, as, a, as a dorky response to this, I would say that there, there needs to be more transparency in this. I think that companies probably do have the right to say, you know what, you can't use ad blockers on my site because that is how, you know, we, we fund this. That's how we monetize it. And so I do understand sort of saying, absolutely no, you can't do this. You've either got to pay or, you know, you've got to accept the ads. This is how we, we support the service. At the same time, I think that there needs to be a conversation around that. And I think it needs to be explained as to why that actually happens. Now, a lot of people won't accept that. Uh, you know, a lot of people will make the choice based on that, but at least they'll be able to make the choice based on, you know, understanding what's at stake, understanding, you know, there's there's servers that need to be paid for somewhere. I think there's they're more likely to convince people to take up subscriptions or or to disable their ad blockers if they actually explain that. Yeah, and I think they just collect so much of our data now anyway that they're never really transparent about whether or not, like what truly happens to that data. So I just feel like it's just corporations being, you know, these facelift greed machines where they want to collect all our data, sell it off without telling us and collect a bit of revenue at the same time. If there truly was a service that was like, look, obviously we have a little bit of your data, but we're really not going to sell it anywhere. It will 100% stay with us. We're only using it to improve the platform that we're on. Uh, but obviously we, we still are a business. We do need revenue please watch this ad, then maybe, sure. But it's just, it doesn't seem like a lot of like YouTube's really playing that game. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And is it possible that AI will run out of things to learn in the year 2026? Jen, researchers have, uh, have issued a warning along these lines. Walk me through it, please. Oh, this is so funny. I, look, I find this so hard to believe that AI is running out of training data when I keep running out of space on my iPhone. <laughs> and and like, they keep saying, you need to buy more. There's not enough terabytes in the world. Well, apparently I could train AI for them. Um, anyway, so um, apparently AI is a very hungry innovation. So um, especially generative AI, which we've seen pop up more recently. Um, chat GPT was reportedly trained on 570 gigabytes of text, which is probably my computer. And it feels like a lot for a creation that can't even tell a decent joke. And then you've got kind of the AI offerings around images. So, you know, Midjourney and Dali and those sorts of things, very hungry for images. And researchers have said they need high quality data. They need a lot of it. And at the current rate that they're going, they could potentially run out of high quality text by uh, before 2026 which seems like a bit of a, a, a harsh um, sledge on some of us who are providing those words on the internet without meaning to. But um, have they allowed for the fact that people do continue to write more things on the internet? Somehow in this, I feel like they've missed the part where people keep adding to the internet. It's not like a finite yeah. resource. No, we haven't reached the end of the internet yet. Even, you know, people in my household haven't reached the end of YouTube. Um, so I think that yeah, there will be obviously a constant flow of new information. I think 
They've kind of misjudged, though, like how much data there, there potentially could be as well, because we're talking about like Gutenberg created his printing press more than 500 years ago. There's a little bit that could still be digitized and potentially used to train this stuff. I think that it's going to have to change the way that that some of these developers actually approach the information that they take. They need high quality training data. They might actually need to pay for some of that data, which is doesn't mean that it's run out. It means that they've run out of the free stuff. I mean, if if AI companies had to pay for the data they were scraping, AI companies would not exist. Surely, Kate. <laughs> like, tell me I'm wrong, Kate. No, I think you're right. They might need a subscription platform, right? <laughs> they might need to pay, like some yeah. of us. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting. They could, you know, as Jen said, use the data they have more efficiently. Um, and it might be more they're worried about high quality data as well. You know, because I've got lots of data in the form, like images on my iPhone, but I don't know if like a thousand selfies of myself in various angles is like considered the high quality they want. Although, like, to me, obviously I mean, it is. naturally. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> but um, I guess these people are looking for more, you know, your academic texts, your online scholar resources <laughs> kind of thing. As you say, people are still going to keep publishing these things. I don't really think uh, it will run out. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it might be a bit of an over-concern. I mean, so to, to your point, there is... Uh they, they do make a distinction about the nature of quality. Uh, like local, they, they class as low-quality data, social media posts or blurry photos. So no disrespect <laughs> to your selfies. When they say high-quality data, Jen, like just hone in on it for me. W- what exactly are we talking about here? Yeah, well, I mean, we've, we've seen kind of like the AI announcement from X, the um, social network formerly known as Twitter, this week. And it's interesting because I don't necessarily know if I want to use an AI system that's based on tweets because I've seen tweets and I've seen what they include. That would be an example of low quality data and potentially data that is has biases baked into it. It has racism and, and goodness knows what else that you to generative AI and make everybody not want to use it. When they talk about high quality data, they're talking about training it, like Kate said, with you know research information, with books, with novels and and nonfiction and fiction accounts that, that you know people have put together, with a specific idea that grammar is good in them, and they have been edited. I think it was really interesting, um, something that we saw earlier this year, where a lot of the the generative AI programs had actually been trained on books that had been stolen. And so they were books that had appeared on a piracy website. And so I think they need to gain access to really, you know, information that doesn't have a massive slant to it, information that is easy for the computer to understand and read, information that can make sure that it produces decent results. And that is maybe not necessarily, the, the, you know, everything that's stored on my iPhone or everything that's stored on X, but could be something stored in official publications, which is why we're seeing some news organizations talk about licensing some of their content. And obviously, they, they need to have a negotiation about how much that might cost and how much that's worth to these companies. I mean, I, I, I'd be interested to understand the economics of that, right? Because uh, as Jen says, I think News Corp, one of the largest, you know, content owners in the world, they have started, you know, making sounds about negotiating for for license deals for content so that AI can actually uh, learn with legitimacy, essentially. I, I don't know if there's a better term for that. Um, 
Do you think that's sustainable long-term, Kate? Long-term? I mean, potentially News Corp probably has an amazing library of images and text uh, AI would love to get its hands on. And there are so many other legitimate publications that could probably help in terms of high-quality data. I think long-term, depending on what the deal is, it could be sustainable. It is, say, News Corp, for example, is a news outlet. They'll always be creating news story which in itself is more data and images and text. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, could, it could be. I know there's also some solutions include synthetic data, which I guess is artificially created. Um, what is synthetic data? That's yeah, a fascinating idea. So I think one example, I think it was the city of Hobart. They were basically training AI to kind of capture and find litter and trash in the waterways. So they basically computer-generated images that would help the AI identify what trash looks like compared to, say, you know, flowing water and help categorise that rubbish. Uh, so that might be one solution, which I'm sure images of trash, real-life high-quality <laughs> images of trash, very much exists. We produce so much of it. <laughs> but it, it, you know, synthetic data is one way that I think many people are trying to kind of get around this particular issue. What do you think of the idea of syn- synthetic data helping helping the process, Jen. That's a fascinating idea. It is really interesting. And I like this idea. Well, I mean, it's, it's similar to machine learning, essentially. It's it's sort of the machine, um, yeah, training the machine. At the same time, I don't know if you all watched Silicon Valley, but there was um, there was an app they created called Not Hot Dog. Yeah. <laughs> and the whole, the whole concept was to identify what was and was not a hot dog. And it feels like this is the way that generative AI is going. We might kind of mock it, but at the same time, it's a good idea that these things are trained on high quality um, information and, you know, whether that's that's synthetic or not, because ultimately people are going to rely on these things and some people aren't going to question the sources of the data. There is also an argument, a fascinating argument, Kate, that um, if it were to run out of new information, which again, it's, it's a silly concept, but if it were to run out, if AI programs were to run out of uh, new information, it might actually help reduce AI's carbon footprint. Thoughts, feelings? Yeah, I mean, maybe that could be just one positive. You know, sometimes constant growth isn't always a good thing. Sometimes it's okay to just sit back and chill and think, wow, we as humanity, we've made all the data we can. (laughs) Let's just take a chill pill for a moment and let everyone catch up. Jen, what are your thoughts on the lowering of the carbon footprint of AI through letting it run out of things. I think it is hilarious. It's it's like the idea that um, I could save the planet by like not turning on my computer every morning or, or going to work or turning on lights. Um, yes, but I would also not be very productive. And I think AI is kind of designed to be productive. So that's an interesting one. <laughs> I think that maybe someone is, is reaching there um, and... <laughs> For a computer program not to be getting any better feels like it's breaking Moore's law and needs to go to jail. I think this is as close to a zen happy ending as this show's ever achieved. (laughs) The AI will run out of things, it'll relax, and the climate will have a minute's reprieve. You know, it actually might be a great plot for like a Black Mirror episode. You know, what to do when we just stop acquiring and (laughs) innovating and growing and when looks around and goes, you know what, we did well, let's... Let's just just pause here. 
have a samosa on the beach or something, you know? Wait, did you Let's say samosa or mimosa? Mimosa, sorry. Mimosa <laughs> no, no. on the beach. Do both. I say do both. Yeah. Anyway, we're off to have mimosas and samosas on the beach. Uh, with that, we are out of time. Kate Weber from IT News, thank you so much for being here on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always lovely to be here. And Jennifer Dudley-Nicholson, Future Economies reporter at the AAP. Thank you for joining us on Download This Show. My pleasure. Thank you. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.